Now, the Three Martini Lunch with Greg Columbus and Jim Garrity. And welcome, everyone, to the Tuesday edition of the Three Martini Lunch, along with David French of National Review, who is in for Jim Garrity today. Jim's still on spring break. I'm Greg Columbus of Radio America. We have bad, good, and crazy martinis for conservatives today. A little bit out of order, but the same uh, good, bad, and crazy. Let's start with the bad, David, and everybody knows, I'm sure, what's coming here, and that's the horrific fire that ravaged the historic Cathedral of Notre Dame in Paris on Monday. It'll also be our, our good martini, so there are some good things out of this as well. But uh, to, to watch that play out in real time on, on television, on, on social media, to watch the spire fall, uh, to see just this incredible structure, uh, for so many reasons, it's, it's, it's incredible. First of all, uh, the fact that it's such a, a monumental cathedral in Catholicism and, and really in, in Christendom. It's been around since 1160, which, to put it in perspective, predates Columbus by 300 years and comes a little more than 300 years after Charlemagne. So that tells you how long 850-some years is here. In addition to the incredible architecture, the incredible artwork, um, the, the Christian relics that, that, that they claim they have there, including the crown of thorns and parts of the the actual cross and the nails and so forth. David, you wrote very movingly of this for National Review. You talked about how you stopped in there to pray on your wedding day back in 1996 and, and what a powerful experience that was. Uh, I was part of a college summer session uh, tour the following summer, summer of 97, uh, that, that went there. And it's just a, a place that uh, you don't forget for so many different reasons. Um, we know as as Christians, that, that Christ himself is the foundation of the church. And so even if something this grand uh, is, is taken away from us, uh, th- that doesn't affect the true foundation of the faith. But to see this happen was gutting for so many people, Catholic or, or not. Yeah, I was, I was shocked how much it hit me <laughs> as I saw that happen. I mean, and I think a lot of people were, uh, you know, to see that church burn, especially having been inside, especially having prayed inside of it. And just to, in the historical connection with the, you know, with the Christian faith, I mean, 800 years is a long time. And to see something so enduring burn like that uh, was, it was an emotional moment for an awful lot of people. We were talking sort of internally at National Review and, and people were really uh, hit hard by that moment. And of course, the obvious take that you saw in on Twitter was, you know, a lot of Christians, especially Protestant Christians like me, saying, well, the church isn't a building. The church, of course, everybody knows that. <laughs> but, you know, there is something deeply, profoundly painful about seeing the destruction of a physical representation of man's devotion to his creator. And, and look, there's a whole book of the Bible about lamentation of a destruction of a physical location, the holy city of Jerusalem and the uh, domination and, and destruction of the, of the temple and the holy city. I mean, these things are, can be absolutely shattering um, because look, when, when you have something like that, that has been created and was birthed out of a desire to glorify God and to see it burn like that. It was hard to take. And I I was texting with some friends um, who, you know, Baptist, Southern Baptist friends, and 
Southern Baptists aren't exactly known for creating cathedrals. <laughs> Uh, and it was, and, and I grew up in very sort of uh, low church Protestantism and, and we, you know, going to churches and uh, buildings that were very, very plain, uh, often didn't even have a cross on them. Um, and so, you know, for somebody like me who, who grew up in that tradition, I wouldn't have expected that I would feel uh, so strongly when I saw the cathedral burning, but having been there, having felt that connection to the historical church when I prayed there, it was very, very tough to watch. And, and you could tell from the anguish you were seeing all across the media, um, people who were secular, people who are religious, people who are of different faiths from Christianity. I mean, there was just this real sense of loss and it was, and I'm going to have to say, I felt like a lot, a sense of loss greater than you would feel and sense when it was a, even a secular, beautiful building burning. Uh, there was something about the loss of that sacred space or the damage to that sacred space that I think hit people in a particular way. When you look at social media, I think people, for the most part, behave themselves well. Other, Some people tried to make some jokes about it, and it clearly was not received well. Uh, and, and at first, you uh, saw a lot of people posting pictures they'd taken on vacation there over the years. And at first, you're like, well, good job inserting yourself into the story. And then you realize that this is their way of processing this, and this is their way of um, internalizing what's happening here. It's, it's kind of interesting. Social media is, is horrible in a number of ways, but it also kind of is a window into how people uh, internalize and, and go through the process of coming to grips with something like this. I went back and forth uh, in my own mind before I wrote my, my piece where I talked about my own experience. Um, but, you know, I realized as I was, as I was thinking it through is this is how the, when you have a personal connection to something, it makes it so much more poignant. And, you know, it reminds me, um, although it's, it was such a greater tragedy because of the loss of life on 9-11. But after 9-11, you know, this is pre-Twitter, but after 9-11, people in conversations and in their own reflections were writing about their own times that they were at the World Trade Centers. And because it's that, it's sort of having your feet on that soil makes everything so much more real. And so, when you think about that, you're going to, and, and it creates a greater sense of loss. It touches you personally in a way that it wouldn't. And so that's why I went ahead and shared it and just put it in the context of, look, lots of people are going to be sharing these experiences. And I think that by sharing these experiences and, and elevating the value of that place, or I shouldn't say elevating it, placing it in its proper place in people's hearts and minds, also it's going to facilitate its rebuilding. It's going to facilitate the commitment to make it beautiful again and to restore it as much as it can be humanly restored. And so it's always a two-edged sword, you know, like uh, when somebody, uh, a famous person dies, you'll see a lot of outpourings and tributes that are like, well, this is how this famous person made my life better uh, and less sort of concern maybe for that person's family and the loved ones that they leave behind. But at the same time, also, this is, you're exactly right. This is how we process things. And and especially in this Notre Dame sense, I think this is uh, it shows the value of, as I put it in my piece, uh, this was a gift. This was a gift from the people of France, uh, not just to their own citizens for the next 800 years, but to the world for the 800 years following the time that they built it. 
And I think you saw the value of that gift in all of the testimonials that were pouring uh, that, you know, were pouring out on Twitter and elsewhere yesterday. Another issue out there, and I think it probably could have been stated a little more deftly by some folks, but uh, some folks saw it as a metaphor for the state of Christianity in, in Europe and particularly Western Europe. And um, I'm not sure exactly when the right time for that conversation is, but as there is a commitment to rebuild the physical cathedral, uh, we can certainly hope that uh, there is also a commitment to rebuild faith and the Christian church in the more biblical sense uh, as, as that takes place as well. Yes, that's exactly right. And, and sometimes, as Scripture teaches us, that God can move in grief. Sometimes it takes a physical, a, a physical manifestation of a spiritual loss to shock people out of their complacency. And if there's any good thing that can come from that loss, maybe that's it. Let's move on to our good martini now, David. It's hard to think that there, and certainly midday yesterday, I didn't think there was going to be a whole lot of uh, ways to put a positive uh, martini onto this story, but there actually is. Uh, First of all, we saw the the human reaction in Paris, which uh, we see sometimes when there are tragedies like this, but the people coming out and singing such as this. And that's how a lot of folks in Paris and and elsewhere uh, were reaching out uh, on their knees as they sang uh, different hymns. The other good news that we're uh, finding out, David, is that a lot of the things that folks were concerned about are intact. Uh, The rose windows are intact. The famous bell towers, uh, for those who have either been there or just seen the Disney version of the Hunchback of Notre Dame, those are intact. Seeing the cross shine uh, in the church uh, as a result of uh, the smoke and the ash still being in the air uh, was was quite powerful as well. And there was an effort to go in there and save uh, the relics like we talked about before. So to see that uh, is also encouraging today. Yeah, I mean, this it was a miracle. It felt it felt like a miracle after you saw some of the aerial shots where the entirety it looked like the entirety of the cathedral was on fire. Um, that while the stone walls were standing, that everything in the center was burning. And if you've you know been in there, you would know that the cent- the, the center of the cathedral is just beautiful beyond words and and majestic and breathtaking. And then the first pictures emerged, and you could see that cross shining at the at the end of the sanctuary, and it was it was stunning to see it. And then to see some of the other pictures you saw, and to see that in fact much of the place was saved. I mean, incalculable damage was done, but much of it was saved. And then you heard begin to heard stories about priests, for example, who risked their lives to save some of these priceless relics. And uh, you know, so it was not. And nearly as dark a day as we thought it was by about, you know, two, three in the afternoon yesterday, two, three in the afternoon yesterday, you were worried that it was just going to be some skeletal ruins still standing. But instead, in spite of a fire that just was awful to watch, um, a huge amount of the cathedral is still standing. And some of the most beautiful elements of it are still intact, like some of the stained glass windows that are literally just absolutely irreplaceable, um, were intact. And so that was amazing. That was amazing. A a lot of people were deeply concerned that they didn't see visible evidence of firefighting early on. And then, uh, you know, as the firefighters sort of descended upon it, you know, hats off to them. They, they saved a huge chunk of the building and made this sort of immediate drive that you're seeing. I think a, a, a French billionaire, 
has already pledged 100 million euros to its reconstruction, which, which is probably a drop in the bucket from what it'll need. Um, but, you know, that gives people immediate hope, whereas if it's just a skeletal structure, there would be an awful lot of just total despair at the idea that it could be reconstructed. But well, another thing that I thought was interesting is a number of people started sharing pictures of German cathedrals and German churches that were just destroyed in World War II and the extent to which they were rebuilt. Um, and, you know, the sad thing is many of them were essentially rebuilt as replicas of the older building, which has value, but still is poignant. But to the extent that some of them were rebuilt and, uh, and preserving as much of the old building as possible while still restore, you know, restoring uh, and making the rest from scratch um, was also encouraging. So I think that you will see, and the good is you will see Notre Dame, you know, the cathedral rise again, but you will not see it necessarily completed, say, in, in our lifetimes. I mean, I think this is a generation-long project. Oh, that's clearly the case. I mean, I think back to... I think it was the summer of 2011, there was a a fairly mild earthquake near Richmond, uh, 5.8 down there. Up here around D.C., it was, I think, a 3-point something, and it damaged the National Cathedral, which is our closest thing to a a Gothic cathedral here in the Washington, D.C. area. And they're still working on it. And the the damage was fairly minimal, uh, certainly compared to this. It's microscopic. And because of the intricacy of the architecture and the work that needs to be done, it's it's very delicate and very painstaking work that needs to be done here. And so if that is still going on almost a decade later, you're right. This is going to be decades, if not longer. And since it took a a century to build, granted, with less technology, uh, 850-some years ago, uh, uh, it's going to take a while uh, to get this done as well. Well, yeah. And but, you know, speaking of technology, um, there's some debate as to whether we even know how to do some of the stuff they did back then. Right. Which is not to say that we can't do what we need to do. But if you're talking about reproducing the structure, um, there's some question as to whether we can specifically do that, uh, which is fascinating to think about how knowledge ebbs and flows in, in human societies. But that's a topic for another time. All right. Well, let's move from the grandeur of the Cathedral of Notre Dame to democratic socialism and Bernie Sanders. That's about as good of a transition as I can do here, David, as Bernie Sanders has guts. I'll give him that. No other Democrat wants to appear on the Fox News channel. Bernie did it with uh, a town hall with hosted by Brett Baer and Martha McCallum on Monday night. A lot of fireworks here, uh, a crowd that I think was mostly lefty, but not entirely. Uh, Bernie Sanders talking about a number of things, which I think gives us some insight onto what Democrats are going to have to grapple with and uh, those who are trying to stop the Democrats are going to have to grapple with in 2020. First of all, here's Sanders responding to the question on late-term abortion. Look, I think that that happens very, very rarely, and I think this is being made into a political issue. Okay. So I think it's rare, it's being made into a political issue, but at the end of the day, I believe that the decision over abortion belongs to a woman and a physician, not the federal government, not the state government, and not the local government. And then we got to the issue of taxes. Bernie wants sort of like a wealth tax, not quite what Elizabeth Warren wants, and here's how he and Martha McCallum got into a dust-up over that. You don't agree with 70 percent. What would your number be? In the campaign in 2016, we talked about 52 percent. All right. So 52 percent. So would you be willing to pay 52 percent on the money that you made? You can volunteer. You can send a check. You can volunteer, too. We have a. But you suggested. You suggested. 
book. Everybody in your bracket should do. And Martha, why don't you give? You make more money than I do. Well, why I don't you I give? I didn't suggest a wealth tax. And she's not running for president. All right, but we're going to fight for a wealth tax. And we're going to demand that we end the absurdity where major corporation after major corporation. You know what? Yeah, in this, tax bill, in this right tax bill that you are defending, families like the Koch brothers, of course you're defending it. Families like the Koch brothers get billions and billions of dollars in savings. Koch brothers, drink. All right, we got to that point on the bingo <laughs> card. And finally, David, uh, this doesn't even involve Bernie, but. Uh, Brett Baird asking the crowd what they think about uh, how health care ought to be paid for in this country. This audience has a lot of Democrats in it. It has uh, Republicans, independents, Democratic socialists, conservatives. Uh, I want to ask the audience a question, if you could raise your hand here. A show of hands of how many people get their insurance from work, private insurance, right now. How many get it from private insurance? Okay, now of those, how many are willing to transition to what the senator says, a government-run system. So, David, it sounds like we've got some work to do to explain to folks that <laughs> more government is not the solution to the problems we've got when it comes to health care and then uh, a lot of other issues uh, where there's a great chasm as well. Yeah, you know, there's a couple of things to say about this. One, I feel like Bernie right now is the only Democrat in the race who's running with one eye on the general election. Because that's what you do when you're thinking about trying to become president is you're going to go and you're going to try to make a case to an audience to expand your audience as opposed to, um, you know, trying to furiously tack left during a Democratic primary. He's already sort of trying to reach out. I mean, I, I wouldn't say Bernie tacks right. There's no such thing as Bernie tacking right. But. Uh, he is at least trying to take his message to a broader audience. And so kudos to him for going on Fox. I mean, that was uh, that was a bold move. I will it will be very interesting to see now that he's getting a kind of a lot of appreciation, even from people on the right for doing it uh, and a lot of admiration for people on the left for doing it. If others follow suit, uh, especially if they look at the viewership numbers and see that he was probably watched by more people than any of them are ever watched uh, any eyeballs any of them ever get on when they're doing their CNN stuff or their MSNBC stuff. So that, so that I'm going to say that good, that good thing about Bernie. Uh, now the good stuff's over. <laughs> <laughs> um, look, I mean, this Medicare for all discussion um, is, this is something that the polling is very interesting. If you talk about Medicare for all and you talk about the benefits of it, you know, no copay, doctor of your choice. You're not going to lose your health insurance when you lose your job or you change jobs. I mean, stability, you know, when they talk about all of that stuff, the approval is way up there. But then when you talk about the cost, the approval starts to vanish. And, and a lot of people, and I would say this, um, if to the extent it's deficit financed, I just have to say nobody's going to care. Because, I mean, we already just ran like, what, a $1.2 trillion deficit in a time of peace and prosperity. Right. And it doesn't seem to be denting Trump with anybody on the right right now. Um, it should be, but it's not. So to the extent that it's deficit finance, that's just so abstract to people. But to the extent that it is financed by tax increases, that's where it gets real. And, and a lot of the supporters of Medicare for All like to say, well, net, net, the total cost it's going to be the same or less than our whole private system. 
And so what they mean is, for example, your, your employee contribution, your employer's contribution, all of those things would be sort of converted to taxes and, you know, sent into the Medicare for all system. But I don't think there's any way, for example, to implement this without raising taxes on Medicare recipients. So you have this huge class of Americans who are already getting Medicare, right? And then you go and increase taxes on them. And so what you're telling to this older cohort of Americans who also happen to vote at a higher rate than anybody else is, you know what Medicare for all is for you? It's basically the same Medicare. It will just cost more. And so that's why I don't I think you're going to see diminishing enthusiasm for this as a race heads into a general election, because you're going to be looking at the most potent part of the American electorate and saying you're going to get the same for more. And it's most appealing to the part of the electorate, the younger part of the electorate that votes the least. So there's a real political dynamic there that I think is um, is problematic for the Bernie forces. So that's why I think you're going to start to see perhaps, well, an interim step sort of argument, which is the one that Pete Buttigieg sort of talks about, which is Medicare for all who want Medicare. And that's the public option. And so, you know, we'll see. But I I, I don't see Medicare for all in the form that Bernie is arguing for right now. As a, as a real winner in an election, once people understand and they're bombarded with ads, it will show exactly the level of increase in their tax burden. Um, and then in that circumstance, when you compare it with de- the increased deficit spending, so that might bring it home to people. They'd say, you know, you might have a 20% increase in your tax burden, and oh, by the way, the deficit will double. Then that might start to get people uh people's attention. But one thing, here's a warning for Republicans. And this is something, this is not original to me. Ramesh has said this. Republicans tend not to be all that imaginative. They're not, we're just not imaginative thinkers. The party as a whole is not imaginative on healthcare. It's sort of default position is to defend the status quo. And we're often deceived by the fact that a large number of Americans are satisfied with their current private health insurance as sort of saying, well, they're satisfied with the system as a whole, when the reality is they're probably just satisfied with where they are right now. But the Democrats do tap, uh, tap into something real when they talk about things like insecurity, when they talk about things like, you know, my health, my health insurance. You know, we, we all know what open enrollment is like. And all of a sudden, one next year rolls around and we're like, hey, it's been Aetna before. Now it's Blue Cross Blue Shield. Here's the new stuff. And while by and large, I'm pretty satisfied with the range of choices that I have, it is true that, you know, the private system um, creates a level of uncertainty that is troubling to an awful lot of people. So to sort of just sit there and say, we're going to oppose Medicare for all, that's one thing. To say, we're going to overestimate people's satisfaction with the current system, that's another thing entirely. David, that's an excellent articulation of the problem that Bernie Sanders and whoever the Democratic nominee is, could be him, could be somebody else, is going to have in pushing uh, Medicare for all. You did it very well, and it took you a few minutes to do it. So the question is, are the Republicans capable of coherently making this argument? Will the media give it any time? And uh, is the attention span of most voters long enough to actually dig in and, and contemplate this? 
Well, I, you know, I don't think you have to, like what I just did was a podcast length explanation. How about this? <laughs> Medicare for all will raise your taxes and narrow your choices. That's pretty simple. Medicare for all will raise your taxes, narrow your choices and put control in the hands of the government. That's one for, you know, progressives with that last part, control in the hands of the government. That's not a bug. That's a feature. But for an awful lot of Americans, that's not so great. But raise your taxes, narrow your choices. And for seniors, you're going to be paying more for the same. And, and that's, you know, I think that's a pretty simple message. <laughs> that is. It's a pretty simple message. Very succinct. Of course, all of it is eventually going to be a moot point because now that William Weld is running for the Republican presidential nomination, all these other candidates become irrelevant because he's a juggernaut that the current president and really no Democrats going to be able to stand up against. I assume you agree with this? <laughs> well, you know, it's going to be interesting. Here, here is a question about the Republican primary that I have, and that is, Will somebody else get in besides Weld playing, essentially doing a, a what if a, a sort of a last man standing kind of of play that, you know, Trump is prone to be erratic? Uh, I, that, is that some news flash to anybody? <laughs> if Trump crumbles in the face of a crisis or if a economic downturn sort of means that people are much less tolerant of his continual antics. Is there an opening there in that circumstance? Maybe, um, but certainly not in the short term, certainly not in sort of the future that's immediately foreseeable. Time will tell. I mean, things are increasingly unpredictable in American politics. So we'll see. David, good to talk to you today. I will actually be out until uh, next Wednesday. So you'll be here with uh, Greg Knapp filling my chair the next three days. Enjoy the time. Thanks for your time with me the first two days this week. Well, thanks for having me. I appreciate it. David French of National Review in for the vacationing Jim Garrity today. As mentioned, Greg Knapp will be in for me the rest of the week. Uh, Jim will be back on Monday, but tune in on Wednesday for the next Three Martini Lunch.